There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews. And today we're going to be talking about the evolution of advice. For the agenda today, Greg, we're going to go through just a bit of the history of investment advice, what we call the pre-modern era, getting into stock and bond portfolios in the modern era, and stock and bond portfolios today, which we're calling the postmodern era. So with that, looking at just sort of the history of investment advice, I like to watch movies. And one of my favorite movies, I'm sure you've seen it, Greg, is Wall Street. Sure. And the movie Wall Street shows a couple of characters, a guy named Bud Fox, who's an up-and-coming stockbroker, and Gordon Gecko, who is a, I don't know, just a, a rich dude that Bud's trying to get as a client. In the movie, they talk about picking companies, picking stocks, being championed for picking those winners. And uh, at one point, Gordon Gecko, who's played by Michael Douglas. Yes. Gordon Gecko tells Bud Fox that he's just investing in a bunch of dogs. And it just sort of highlights sort of the way things were back then. This movie came out, I believe, in 1987, just before the big crash. And since then, there's obviously been an evolution of advice. And in this specific podcast, we're talking about the evolution of advice as it comes to security selection or investing. So for us, it was, we weren't that far off at the beginning of our careers, maybe not as bad as Bud Fox and Gordon Gecko, but we did participate in what we call knuckle-dragging Neanderthal-like behavior, which might be a little harsh, but we call that basically stock picking and bond trading, individual stocks and bonds. And, you know, it wasn't our fault. This is actually the way that we were trained, that we were raised at our broker-dealers, was to focus on product that over time went through different forms of evolution, the most recent one being the royalty trust would you call it a debacle? Well, it was certainly a phase that was ended abruptly by the Canadian government in 2006, I believe. Yeah, it was right after the election to which they promised not to touch royalty trusts. Anyways, back in the day, early in our careers, we would do things like look at our company-listed recommended holdings. And of course, everybody would gravitate towards the couple of stocks that had the highest forecasted rate of return. I mean, who wouldn't want to own the two or three stocks that were supposed to grow the most. In those days, I had a family member. Well, I still have him as a family member. We just maybe don't speak as much. But he came to me and he wanted to invest some money. And I had proposed to him a mutual fund portfolio that had a mix of bonds and stocks. It was made up of Canadian funds, U.S. funds, international funds, and some bond funds. And this family member said to me that that just wasn't good enough, that he wanted more. He wanted me to pick winners, to pick winning companies. So what happened? I showed him our current recommended list at the time, and two of the companies had higher expected returns from our analysts than any of the other companies. And of course, this family member said, well, I want to own those companies. I mean, Greg, why wouldn't you want to own the companies that have the highest return? Of 
it was reasonable for him to look at that list and think, this is what I want to do. So he put 50% of his money into these two companies. I'll share with you their names. I think I can, as long as we have a disclaimer somewhere on the show. Sierra Wireless and ATI Technologies. Now, one day, Sierra Wireless went down 40% in value during one trading session. This is after my family member had purchased it. And ATI Technologies didn't fare that much better. And what you talked about in our last podcast, Greg, about uh, stock picking, this really just ended up dragging down the returns for the whole portfolio. Needless to say, this family member and I still see each other once in a while. We don't ever talk about investing. It's funny. I look back at my own career, which started about uh, almost 25 years ago, so mid-1990s, and it just highlights the nature of the relationship between broker in those days and client. And it was basically a transactional relationship, meaning that we would call a client if our analysts uh, had a good idea or it had come out with their top picks for the upcoming year. And we would call our clients or as many as we could get to and recommend that they buy the stocks that were on the recommended list and perhaps recommend they sell the stocks that were not on the recommended list. And that's, of course, not all we did, but that was a big part of it. That was part of the appeal of being in the brokerage industry. And so, again, the relationship was very transactional, and that would limit the kind of conversation we would have, would be discussing the various virtues of the recommendations we were making. So when I joined the CM group, at that point, I was dealing with over 500 client households. And with that many households to look after, there really is no opportunity to really get to know the clients, understand their goals, their financial objectives, etc. And again, the interaction was largely limited as to which stock or bond should be bought or sold. So Greg, that's the pre-modern era. That would be pre-modern. The objective of those calls was really to make good returns. And those returns, or the reason for getting those returns, everybody, of course, wanted 10%. We all did. But there was no linking those returns to specific goals or objectives of the individual's. And as a result, people tended to have very similar portfolios and the riskiness or the analysis of risk in portfolios was really limited to the know your client requirement and selection of, well, how much of our money is going to be in stocks and how much is going to be in bonds. And that was really the extent of it. There was also at that time, you probably remember this too from the early days, there was quite a wide distinction between the types of products that were offered through different channels of advice. And there was almost a competitiveness between the channels. So, for example, the mutual fund dealers, which could be anything from large companies to smaller individual advisors or planners that would just set up their own independent offices, they primarily, as the name would suggest, dealt only with mutual funds. And that's typically what was offered, therefore, to their clients. And they did not offer anything else, like individual stocks or bonds or what have you. And whereas stockbrokers could offer a more complete suite of products, so that would include stocks, bonds, GICs, mutual funds, government savings, bonds, and other derivatives such as options or futures. Because of the different channels, you tended to get a competitiveness of those advisors towards each other and towards the different channels. And although, uh, and I think we even there was some arrogance on the part of the brokerage channel because it was almost like, well, we're superior because we can offer a whole range of products as opposed to you guys who only sell mutual funds. And in the end, what's remarkable about that is that it's all about 
the provider of the service and the advice and not about the client. And in the end, the selection of the most appropriate product or solution for a client should always be made on the needs of the client and the client's resources as opposed to a product-based decision. So quite a change, but that's where we started. Well, and the evolution, I guess it started there and it continues on. It took us from those Neanderthal-like times, which is maybe a a harsh way of saying pre-modern times. And as we went into a more modern era, I remember those people that you were discussing earlier. When I started in this business, there was quite common to hear the term sweater. And a sweater (laughs) was a person who could only sell mutual funds. And um, it's not a very nice term, but it was there. As there was arrogance around, well, buying stocks versus just being able to invest in mutual funds. And, you know, we went through model portfolio theory and this idea that, well, look, we can be diversified in stock portfolios as long as we hold, I think the number was like 20 to 30 stocks. Most of these portfolios would have been like Canadian stock based, of course. They might have a little bit of exposure to some U.S. and international holdings by either a couple of stocks or maybe a multinational company that happens to trade on a market. And we're benchmarked. We looked at our performance and we're benchmarked against people like Bill Miller. Remember Bill Miller who ran, was it called the Leg? The Leg Mason Value Trust, exactly. Leg Mason Value Trust. And Bill Miller had books written about him because Bill was able to outperform the S&P 500 for 15 straight years. That's pretty remarkable. But that was that was that time, the the modern time. Absolutely. Interestingly, back in the late 1990s, I mean, the concept of broad diversification through global asset allocation was actually quite difficult in registered retirement savings plans where a lot of people had most of their savings. We were limited to only something like 15% foreign content. And so by regulation, we were forced to be undiversified or more concentrated in Canadian securities. Luckily, that's another thing that's evolved over the years, and that's the government has removed those requirements, and we can now invest in a portfolio that more accurately reflects the entire global stock markets. So that was like a government-led home country bias in portfolios. Exactly. Exactly. The one thing that every country in the world suffers from, and ours was imposed on us by the government. One of the other big changes in the advice industry over the years, and certainly since I started, has been the cost of investing. When I started, typically the cost of a stock transaction, sorry, should, could have been anywhere between 1% and 2% of the value of that transaction. So if you're talking about a $20,000 stock purchase, that could have cost you $400 in commissions. If you were to sell something, sell a stock, let's say, to replace with the new stock, then that would be two transactions, $400 each, $800 in total. So in one day, basically, with those two transactions, you would have spent about 4% of the value of the transactions just to get that change. You know, and for that trade to have been worthwhile now, and let's say we're benchmarking against the market as a whole, you now would have had to beat the market by 4% with those changes just to break even before you're even, you know, moving ahead of the market. And so that is something that we'll talk about has come down quite a bit, the cost of transactions. But not to be outdone, uh, cost of mutual funds also used to be extremely high. And if you can believe this, at one time, the cost to buy a mutual fund was 9% upfront. That is high. So 9%. So for every $100 you invest, you're starting in the market with $91. 
that went the way of the dodo birds. And But there were still uh, very high costs associated with some mutual funds, whether it was an upfront cost of 1% or 2% to buy the funds, or what they used to call, or what they do call, deferred sales charges, which don't exist anymore. But they do. Well, they do exist, but we don't. We haven't done them in our group for over 20 years, and they are starting to become outlawed by various firms. But those deferred sales charges the advisor would earn 5% by placing the mutual funds in the client's account. And so the client didn't directly pay that 5%, but if they were to switch out of that company's funds at any point within, say, a six-year period, they would be paying a fee on the way out. Well, you remember there's people in our industry that would sell these DSC funds, and as a joke, they used to call the acronym DSC discount. Yes, exactly. (laughs) The change and the evolution in costs and this is something we're highly supportive of. And so, thank goodness, and by, by regulation and by evolution, costs to investors have come way down. And therefore, lots of opportunity to capture very good market-like returns with very low costs. And again, I think that's all beneficial. And, and one of the things that was part of that whole process was the evolution or the development of discount brokerages in the late 1990s. And discount brokerages actually played a very vital role because they showed investors that you do not need to pay a lot of money for executing a transaction. And what that really did is it forced us in the full service advice channel to really focus on the value that we bring to client relationships. And the value is not necessarily on doing stock execution or trade execution, but rather on giving advice that meets the client's needs and goals for the long term. Well, and those in the U.S. anyways, a couple of those larger discount trading brokerages have been acquired by other companies and they're actually charging zero for trades. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, listen, you recall and I recall back in the day, though, it was fun trading stocks. It was a blast. Yeah. And bonds, too. I mean, I remember having days where you'd call the bond desk up and be on a first name basis with the bond trader and you take down millions of dollars of a bond at a time and and you would call clients and see if it fit into their portfolio. It was a different time. It was. And it was fun. And again, entirely focused in the wrong direction, focused on us and not on the clients. I remember during that time or since then how we've talked often together about in this evolution of advice, we came to realize that, look, it might have been fun for us to trade stocks and bonds, but it wasn't our money. And it was the client's money. And we we had this realization that our job is to be fiduciaries. Absolutely. And at that time, there was, you know, there's little collaboration and communication within a firm. You were rewarded for this this sales activity, this knuckle-dragging Neanderthal-like sales activity, which again, might be a little harsh. But but let's get back to Bill Miller. Remember I I mentioned him earlier. He outperformed the S&P 500 for 15 straight years. And everybody looked at him like, He knew exactly what to do. But then the global credit crisis hit and he gave back all 15 years of returns in one year. That's quite an evolution. Well, it is. And and I think what it does is it continues to highlight for us how, you know, when the disclaimers on all mutual funds purchases are that past performance is not an indication of future performance. And I think it, it just helps to highlight that. And that is that, the advice is not about future performance and how that is going to be justified by what happened in the past. We all know that the future is uncertain 
And what we want to do as we give advice to our clients is ensure that we give advice that's forward-looking and that just capitalizes on what we know about how markets perform over time and try to put our clients in the best possible shape to achieve their goals in the future. So we've evolved to this postmodern era from the modern era. And for me, I, I say this is when we saw the light, we created fire and we came out into this current state, which we could call the information age, but basically being broadly diversified with types of portfolios that everyone benefits from or, or can benefit from. Yeah, I think the other thing is when you mentioned the word fiduciary before, and I think it's important to understand what a fiduciary is. A fiduciary responsibility, which is what we have as portfolio managers, is a responsibility to act in the best interests of the client and to avoid any possible conflicts of interest. And I think that was probably if you had to wrap up what was wrong with the way we used to work in the early days is that there was an inherent conflict of interest. And it's not that brokers were ill-meaning or mean-spirited or acting or not acting in the best interest of their client, but there was absolutely the perception that there could have been a conflict of interest. Because of course, every time you recommended a change in a portfolio to a client, that resulted in a commission that was paid to the advisor. Well, don't you have that saying about a hammer and a nail or something? You mean when uh, when your only tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's right. And I think this evolution has led us to where we are now as portfolio managers. And in, for many of our clients, we're operating, acting in a discretionary manner, in which case the client gives us the discretion to make investment decisions on their behalf. And the fiduciary responsibility that comes with that is based in law and it ensures and guarantees that there can be no conflict of interest. And in all fairness, we behave that way with all of our clients, whether in their particular case, we're acting as a fiduciary or not. And it's interesting, we have somebody we deal with who always likes to point out to me, if you spell advisor with an O versus an E, one of them is indicative of fiduciary duty and one's not. And he always would ask me how we spell it. And I would tell them, well, we don't because we're licensed as portfolio managers, which means we actually have a fiduciary duty regardless. Exactly. But this takes us back to, so when I was thinking about this pre-modern era, I guess I would call that before the global credit crisis for us in our evolution. And I remember being in presentations and we'd have various analysts come in and there's one particular guy who came in and he was pitching a product. And with the product, it was down. It was down, I think, at the time, about 50% from its initial value. And he said, look, the only thing that could affect this security is to have a credit crisis worse than the 1930s. Now, unfortunately, that exactly happened <laughs> in a short period of time. And that particular product went down from $25 a share to, I think, 18 cents at one point. Mm -hmm. And I believe it closed out around $4 a share or something. And it just goes to show how in this business, there's no guarantees. And that's why when we make investment decisions and we develop a plan, our plan is based on everything we know about what's happened in the past. And again, trying to position everything for the best possible outcome in the future but without a firm guarantee of any particular result. And I guess it talks about that, how the evolution plays into portfolio construction as a whole. I mean, now we're focused on, on planning. So we're trying to work with clients, but what's important to them that requires 
planning money and time, things that they want to achieve, and then creating the portfolio based on that plan. Well, that's exactly right. And as I said earlier, in the early days, it wasn't the goal or the return that we were trying to achieve was not linked to anything in particular. It was just a return. And for many people, if they've achieved their life's goals in terms of the amount of money they've acquired or they have set aside for their retirement or for their children's or grandchildren's education, and they only require a 2 or 3% return or to stay ahead of inflation, let's say, then you could ask the question, well, why would you structure a portfolio of all equities geared to try to get an 8 to 10% rate of return when that's totally not necessary? And in fact, what it does is it exposes their current level of safety to more risk. So, and that's where I think when you talk about, well, where have we come to today from where we started? I think you can sum it up all in wealth management as opposed to stock brokerage. And wealth management includes a whole host of planning activities, financial planning, estate planning, risk management through insurance and long-term care insurance for the future. And the investing, while the investing is still an important part, it's not the only part. Well, that's always my pet peeve is through this evolutionary process, every once in a while, somebody will still refer to us as a broker. And I don't like that word because I don't remember brokering a transaction. That's right. And I think that, but it does sort of highlight how things have changed over the years because being a stock broker was what many people wanted to achieve uh, or wanted to choose as a career because it was fun and exciting. And now, whether we're portfolio managers or investment advisors or wealth managers, the focus, again, is not on the execution of transactions. The focus is on building a diversified portfolio geared towards clients' long-term goals and in a way that will give them a positive investment experience and not the negative experience that your family member experienced. (laughs) (laughs) My family member and also uh, going back to the movie Wall Street, just because it is a classic movie, You know, in the movie, Bud Fox has some inside information and he calls up the newspaper and he has to, he uses a code word so that he can let the reporter know what company to highlight in the paper tomorrow. Do you remember that part? And the code he uses is Blue Horseshoe Likes Anacott Steel. Now, I guess back then that's what you were trying to do. You were trying to figure out the Anacott Steel before it was printed in the paper. But I guess today it would be more like Blue Horseshoe likes asset allocation, diversification, and linking your investment outcome to your goals. Absolutely right. And that, I think, summarizes when I was thinking about, well, if you had to summarize the evolution of advice in four or five points, it would be less focus on individual stocks and more consultative, less transactional relationship between advisor and and their client. I can say that in my case, and I think for all of us, We now deal with far fewer households than we used to, which allows us to develop a much deeper relationship and get a much deeper understanding of our clients' goals and be able to address all of their goals that require planning money and time. Lower costs for investors, that's been a dramatic change. And in fact, Morningstar did a study, and one of the best predictors of future success is the level of fees. The lower the fees, the higher probability of success with a mutual fund investment. Better transparency. We're now able to see all of the fees. There's no hidden fees. They're being reported directly to clients every year. And I think in the end, we have now a much greater level of service that we can provide to our clients. 
And we also have a much greater variety of services that we offer that go well, well beyond picking stocks and doing transactions. Exactly. Look, we don't have much more time today, Greg. Is there anything else you want to add to our discussion on the evolution of investing? So this is specific to security selection? Well, I think something that we're going to be talking about in, in the future is, well, how do you then build a portfolio that gives the diversification that we want, that we know we want, and in a way that everyone's goal is to beat the market? Many people will say, well, I don't want to just earn the return of the market. The market, you can do that simply with an index fund at a very low cost. I want to beat the market. And there are strategies that will attempt to beat the market and have been proven successful over long periods of time, but absolutely not guaranteed in any one particular year or even a three- or a five-year period. So we'll be talking about those in one of our next episodes. Right on. I know that the average fund return, we talked about this before, the average fund return is the market less its fees. The average driver believes, I think it's like 80% of drivers believe they're above average drivers. <laughs> so <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And, and the last thing is on average, we're all average. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And again, I think as we go into future episodes and talk about different strategies like factor investing, we'll see that there are ways to achieve good returns relative to the market, to have a positive investment experience, one where you're not, your emotions aren't rising and falling every day with the market and the clients are getting the service that they need to be able to have that positive investment experience. Exactly. Well, listen, thanks for joining us today on the free lunch. Next episode, we will be discussing the difference between speculation and goals-based investing. Excellent. We'll see you next time. All right. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc. 2020.